The views expressed on this show by guests and the host on issues outside of the 9-11 controlled demolition evidence are the opinions of those individuals alone and do not necessarily reflect those of architects and engineers for 9-11 Truth. Welcome to 9-11 Freefall. I'm the host, Andy Steele. And if you've been following our news updates at AE 9-11 Truth, you'll have seen this headline. U.S. District Court rules against exposing truth about Building 7. This is regarding the lawsuit against Nest and the latest developments there. And today we're going to be talking about that. And we're going to be joined by two of the key people involved in this entire uh, adventure here. Uh, the first guest is Mick Harrison. Uh, he is with the Lawyers Committee for 9-11 Inquiry. He is a public interest attorney and has had a national practice focused on cases that involve whistleblower protection, government accountability, corporate fraud, and false claims and dangers to public health or the environment. So let's go ahead and put him in there. And he's going to be joined today by Ted Walter, who is the Director of Strategy and Development here at AE 9-11 Truth. He holds a Master's of Public Policy degree from the University of California, Berkeley. Prior to his current role with AE, he was director of NYC CAN's 2014 High-Rise Safety Initiative. He was a volunteer campaign manager for the Rethink 9-11 campaign back in 2013 and director of NYC CAN's 2009 ballot initiative. He's the lead author of Beyond Misinformation and World Trade Center Physics, and AE 9-11 Truth's uh, request for correction to the NIST WTC7 report, which is all wrapped up in this. So let's put him on in the stream here. Guys, welcome back to the show. Thank you, Andy. Good to be here. Thank you, Andy. All right. So always wary of new people coming aboard. I want to get 10 new people watching the show and following our efforts here at AE 9-11 Truth uh, every single week. That is my goal. So let's take those 10 people into account right now. Ted, give the background of this whole matter to those new viewers. Sure. Well, I mean, this all stems, first of all, from uh, the destruction of World Trade Center Building 7 on 9-11 uh, at 5.20 p.m. in the afternoon, of course, which came down about seven hours after the Twin Towers did. Uh, People have been uh, investigating uh, the destruction of this building for over 20 years now uh, and have reached the conclusion, which is evident when you look at the video, that the building came down uh, by way of controlled demolition. Uh, the National Institute of Standards and Technology issued a report um, in 2008, that's a federal agency of the U.S. Department of Commerce, issued a report in 2008 uh, claiming that the building came down due to normal office fires. Uh, it was not even damage from the collapse of the North Tower or any of the other things that people might have heard like diesel fuel tanks um, that were responsible for the collapse of the building. It was normal office fires. Um, since then, uh, engineers uh, and scientists have critiqued the NIST report and, you know, over the course of about a decade, a little more than that, uh, developed a huge body of evidence showing that NIST report is flagrantly false and unscientific and that really culminated with the release of the University of Alaska Fairbanks report uh, in 20, March of 2020, uh, which AE 911 Truth uh, funded. Um, 
about a month after that, in April of 2020, uh, we submitted a request for correction to NIST <clears throat> under the Data Quality Act, uh, which was attempting to, to use that, that act to uh, force NIST to correct many of the falsehoods in its report, some of which were proven uh, by the University of Alaska Fairbanks report. Uh, and so that's what the, the Data Quality Act allows uh, members of the public to do, which is question the validity of uh, information issued by federal agencies. Um, so uh, where we are now is about two, two and a half years later, we submitted that request for correction. Uh, NIST denied the request for correction, and maybe we can get into some of those scientific details, but for now, let's, let's focus a little on the lawsuit. Um, NIST denied the request for correction, and in our view, uh, provided a response that was totally, again, totally unscientific, and that didn't really constitute a response under the Data Quality Act. Did not was not a real, genuine response um, because uh, they don't actually address the criticisms, uh, the explanations that they give, the positions that they give justifying what's in their in their report is totally ludicrous. In many cases, they just ignore many of the arguments made in the request for correction. Um, so we decided to file a lawsuit, uh, AE911 Truth, together with. Several 9-11 family members and many architects and engineers uh, filed a lawsuit about a year ago, uh, making exactly that case, that NIST's response to the request for correction was not actually uh, a valid and lawful response under the Data Quality Act. The goal of this lawsuit essentially was to get the uh, you know, federal court to uh, order NIST to go back and produce a real, genuine, meaningful response to our request for correction which would, which would require NIST to essentially rerun many of its computer analyses, actually go back and test some of the melted steel that was recovered from Building 7, and do many other, uh, many other analysis that would ultimately result in NIST revising its report and acknowledging that Building 7 came down due to controlled demolition and discarding its previous conclusion that it collapsed due to fire. Uh, so that's, that's what the lawsuit was all about, and we uh, recently received a decision from district court in Washington, D.C., uh, siding with NIST. Um, and and I'll, I'll let Mick get into some of those details, but the decision um, essentially says that, uh, well, siding with NIST saying that we don't, we don't have standing to bring this lawsuit and we don't have standing to challenge NIST's response to the request for correction under the Data Quality Act. And this is obviously very disappointing, not totally surprising. Uh, we knew, um, you know, we knew that we know we know that going up against the federal government in any lawsuit is is, is, is a challenge, is, is an uphill battle. Um, nonetheless, we, we felt that we were in the right as far as the law was concerned and as far as truth is concerned, and that we had to bring this lawsuit. And you know, so we are we are planning to appeal this this decision um, to the um, U.S. Court of Appeals. Well, they have no standing except for their arguments about standing because their their whole report just doesn't have any standing in physics, common sense, science, anything that uh, that could make sense to a public that just wants the truth on this issue. So, Ted, before we go to Mick and we start diving into the nitty gritty of this, I want to address something. Why is it important that we keep on challenging them in the courts with everything that you just said there? Uh, about how tough it is to take on the U.S. government, especially one that's just uh, desperately trying to cover up a lie this big. Why do we need to keep challenging them in the courts? Well, I think as a matter of principle, we need to take this as far as it can possibly go. We need to uh, try every door, every conceivable um, avenue uh, to success, uh, so long as you know resources will allow. Um, and 
you know, it, there's always, a, and, and to be clear, there is a chance that we will prevail uh, on appeal. Um, and, and if we do not appeal, we do not know what would happen uh, had we had we tried to appeal. So we have to take this as far as we can go. Um, and we, ha we have to not back down. We have to, you know, show that we will take it as far. We have to show that, um, you know, we're not just gonna, gonna back down to, to NIST or to the, you know, to the US legal system or anyone else. Um, and whatever, whatever the, the outcome may be, if it ends up going against us uh, on appeal, um, the fact that we continue this fight is also what will um, help bring this information to more people and inspire more people uh, to also continue to fight in ways that uh, they can. Exactly. You got to keep on pushing and we got to go through the avenues that are available to us because we're going to need an official acknowledgement, uh, you know, just getting some people in a room who uh, to agree with us if they have no teeth, no legal power to enforce uh, any kind of rule of law here in the United States. I mean, it makes us feel good, but if we're going to actually accomplish our mission. We need to get some success in the courtrooms or in Congress or in some official body where the public will take note and realize, oh my God, this is what really happened on that day. Now, uh, we're going to go to Mick. I just want to bring everybody's attention to something. I went over the judge's memo yesterday, which is also available in the article that I cited earlier. If you click on the proper link in the article. So I'm going to share my screen here. Uh, one second. Let's see how that comes out on the screen. And, and uh, let's see. Let's put everybody like this. And... Now, I want everyone just to take note, and uh, if you can read the article, but the, the, in the section right here, it perfectly defines the essence of what we are battling. Uh, they write NIST conclusions very normally, um, you know, saying about, uh, about what they say happened, NIST has happened. They concluded that, concluded that debris from the collapse of one of the towers ignites fire in WTC7, generating so much heat that a structural support inside the building collapsed. But then they put everything that we say in quotes as if there's something kooky about it. Um, and the judge is supposed to be just listing it as a matter of fact here in this. I mean, these are our conclusions, but it's not just what our conclusions are. Uh, they even put quotes around the words without having been struck by an aircraft as if that's an opinion. No, that is a matter <laughs> of fact. So I don't know if we can begin with a little bit of commentary about that matter there, Mick. I'd be kind of interested in hearing uh, your thoughts on that. Well... Uh, you know, it's okay to, to use quotes sometimes and okay not to use quotes sometimes. It depends on how you use them. As you point out, there's no real reason to put quotes around that phrase without being struck by an airplane um, because it is an acknowledged fact. The government doesn't challenge it. So I don't understand that part. There are some other quotes in the decision that I thought were taken out of context of our brief and gave a false impression and more narrow view of our position than we deserved. So I'm a bit of a critic of the judge's use of quotes in that decision as well. Um, it's not uh, probably uh, standing alone a an appealable error. There are plenty of appealable errors we'll talk about in that decision. But it does raise a question about, you know, the court's objectivity towards our position. 
Absolutely. And again, it's an illustration of what we're up against. Obviously, it's not the biggest part of this entire thing, but it's one of those things that you can't help but notice when you're trying to take this issue on. And I know that we are right. I mean, it's not a question of I think we're right. I know we are right. We have proven controlled demolition to my satisfaction. And now we just got to get over all the hurdles of getting it out there. So Mick, uh, I'm just going to ask you to begin by giving your own overview of, of what what happened uh, in this process, what are the arguments you make and then what were their answers to that and why are they wrong? Well, there's a, quite a bit involved in that. So let me start with a reminder that we had three different federal statutes we were suing on. Uh, the Information Quality Act is the better known of the three. Uh, is the statute that says uh, the public can challenge an agency report if the information in it uh, fails to meet the standards like integrity and uh, transparency. There are a number of standards. And basically it's intended to make sure we don't get essentially defrauded by our own government, either intentionally or inadvertently in an agency report. It's an important law. It's uh, in the process of being interpreted by the courts and the courts have not settled yet on the ins and outs of it and including our right to enforce it. So this case may be one of the first to establish that right. Um, something to keep in mind is because of that, it was almost certain this case would go the, to the next level. The U.S. Court of Appeals, even if we had won at this level, the government almost certainly would have appealed it. So we were going to unfortunately need to incur the expense of going to the next level, even to defend the victory. Another uh, of, th of the three statutes was the Administrative Procedures Act, which allows citizens to challenge arbitrary agency action by a government entity, uh, which basically means unreasonable, irrational government action. So we, we relied on that law. And then there's the National Construction Safety Team Act, Folks probably don't realize why that act was included in this lawsuit because NIST report was issued some years ago and folks might be thinking we're too late to sue under that law. And uh, we argued that there was fraudulent concealment by NIST of the material evidence. And so the statute of limitations would be told T-O-L-L-E-D and would not have run. The court did not decide that question. Um, and we'll get into what the court did decide. But the gist of that law and why it's important to this lawsuit is it created a duty on the part of NIST to issue a public report, emphasize the word public, public report on the likely technical cause of the collapse of Building 7. And it's that statutory duty to issue a public report that gives all of us a right to information from NIST regarding that collapse which is why architects and engineers and the co-plaintiffs, the family members and the engineers and architects, why we all have standing, informational standing. To have informational standing, you have to have a right to some kind of information from the government. And there has to be some kind of law that establishes that right, either a statute, a consti the constitution, maybe a regulation. And in this case, we have that right because of the National Construction Safety Team Act. So keep that in mind. If you read the court's decision, uh, you know, keep that law in mind. 
and there are some important details about that that I'll share with you here in a moment. So our position is that when the court decided that none of us, none of the plaintiffs had standing, that it made a number of legal errors. And uh, one of those, a big error, if you read the decision, you'll get the impression, particularly if you haven't followed the cases that came before, you'll get the impression that the court was correct because it didn't really give our position fully that the court was correct when it said that we essentially were just trying to do again what we had failed to do in previous cases, that we had lost on standing in a previous case before the district court in D.C. We had lost on standing in a previous case before the district court in New York. Well, that is true as far as it goes, but uh, there's a distinction between those other cases, an important distinction, and the court didn't, uh, I think, treat that distinction in the way it should have. It didn't really fully recognize it. And the major dis distinction is, in the case we brought against the FBI earlier, AE was a party in that case as well. I was a lawyer in that case. Um, we were challenging the FBI's 9-11 Review Commission report, not the original from the commission, but the FBI's later 2013-2014 report for failing to look at this demolition evidence, among other evidence. And there, the statute, which was just a funding bill, an appropriations bill, did not explicitly say in language of the statute that a report had to be issued. That requirement came in legislative history in a report from the Senate. Now, it was a perfectly clear requirement from Congress that they wanted a report. But the court in the earlier case said, we don't have standing because the statute itself doesn't say a report has to be issued to the public. And as far as that goes, it was a correct factual statement. It just was wrong in not looking at the clear legislative history. But that case actually supports our position in the case against NIST now, because the court in that earlier case from the same district court in DC essentially was saying, well, if there had been language in the statute that said a report had to be issued publicly, then you know there would be a basis for informational standing. Well, that's what we argued in this case. So now we have a moving target. You know, in the first case, the court says, you need a statute that says a public report has to be issued. In this case, we have that. And the court says, we still don't have informational standing. So the court should have made a distinction between that prior case. Instead, it relied on it as if it was analogous to this case, and it just wasn't analogous. So that's a major, a major error that we will be pointing out to the Court of Appeals. So, but it's just one of the errors. Um, the DC Circuit, the US Court of Appeals for the DC Circuit is essentially the boss of the district court in DC. Uh, the district court just made this decision and district courts have to follow binding legal precedent set by their boss, the Court of Appeals in their circuit. Now, in this case, uh, the DC Circuit has set some legal precedent applicable to this case. And that precedent should have been followed by the district court, but it wasn't. And one of those uh, DC circuit uh, decisions that set precedent was that when a district court decides standing, particularly informational standing, but other kinds of standing as well, but it's, it's primarily focused on informational standing, a key is not only what the statute says, the statute that is alleged to be the basis for the information requirement, but 
the D.C. Circuit actually says that the court, in deciding informational standing, has to accept, and, and listen carefully to this, has to accept the plaintiff's reading of that statute. Okay? And there's a reason for that. Stand, deciding a standing question is not deciding the merits of a case. Okay? When you get into the merits of a case, you're deciding what does the statute require? Did the agency follow the statute? Did the agency violate the statute? So here, this was a standing decision. It was not a decision yet on the merits. So the court is not supposed to get into whether we're right or wrong on our reading of the statute. That's a merits question. Okay, the court is supposed to decide on our reading of, in this case, the National Construction Safety Team Act, on our reading of that statute, was there a requirement to issue a public report? And what are the, the what's the substance of that requirement? What information did we have a right to? Now, our interpretation of that statute, which wasn't particularly a strain in any sense was, first, the plain language of the statute has to be followed, a report has to be issued, it has to be public, and it has to include an analysis of the likely technical cause of the collapse of the building. Now, that's in the plain language of the act. That's not even our reading of it. That's just what it says. Okay. Now, what does our reading add to that? Well, not much. All we said was to comply with that statute, the agency has to issue a report doing those things I just mentioned in good faith, not a sham report that is completely devoid of scientific merit that would have to be issued in bad faith that ignores both the evidence and the science. So we're saying there has to be substantive compliance with the statutory language, not just a sham appearance of compliance. That's our reading. Now, how unreasonable is that reading that Congress intended compliance with a federal congressional mandate to be substantive and not a sham, not just the appearance of compliance? Well, you can guess my answer to that. And that is that, you know, our reading was perfectly reasonable. The court decided our reading was not plausible. Not, not just that it wasn't reasonable, it wasn't even plausible. And that's why the court, that was the court's excuse for not following the binding legal precedent from its boss, the U.S. Court of Appeals for the D.C. Circuit, which says in deciding informational standing, the plaintiff's reading of the statute has to be accepted. So you may want to let that sink in, but that's kind of a major error here. Well, according to the courts, does does the government, and I'm talking very you know loosely about the government, we can narrow it down to NEST if we want, do they have to provide an accurate report? You, know, you mentioned the word good faith. I think most people uh, living in the post 9-11 years before they woke up to the evidence that AE puts out assumed that the government was doing its due diligence to try to put out the best report that they possibly could with the information they could gather and that what they put out represented the best that they could do. But are they actually, according to what you've been experiencing here, required to try to put out accurate reports? It's a good question. My answer would be that a report by an agency to comply with the law doesn't have to be perfect. But if it's arbitrary, it violates the Administrative Procedures Act. If it doesn't give a likely emphasize the word likely technical cause of collapse 
of a building, it violates the National Construction Safety Team Act. If it doesn't acknowledge legitimate scientific principles and ignores hard evidence that's really undisputed, it violates the Information Quality Act. So the report doesn't have to be perfect, but it can't be, what would be the word, uh, fundamentally unsound in the ways I just described. If it's a bad faith, if it's a sham, if it is arbitrary, if it ignores science, ignores evidence, and in the case of NIST, doesn't really look at the likely technical cause, but looks at something that cannot conceivably be the likely technical cause. Because basically here, you know, collapse due to fire alone has been eliminated by the science, and that's what AE's petition does such a great job of demonstrating in great detail, very meticulously. It's one of those Sherlock Holmes things, when you've eliminated the impossible, whatever remains, however improbable must be the truth. Well, collapse due to fire has been eliminated as impossible. Okay, and the Alaska study shows that the only way you get Building 7 to collapse uniformly, symmetrically, and rapidly like it did is to essentially remove pretty much all or most of the supporting columns simultaneously. Well, that is essentially the definition and the, the goal, the objective of a controlled demolition. So here, uh, there, the NIST reports didn't have to be perfect. But they had to be good faith, they had to be honest, they had to be consistent with the Administrative Procedures Act and not be arbitrary. They had to be consistent with the Information Quality Act and not ignore science and evidence that's not disputed. And it actually had to focus on a likely technical cause to comply with the National Construction Safety Team Act. So, you know, we don't have to prove up to get standing the merits of our petition and the merits of our APA claim, IQA claim, and, and NCST claim, we just have to show a plausible reading of the statute that gives us the right to information. And that gives us standing to get to the merits. And then the court has to decide all this other stuff about how, just how inadequate was this report and was it inadequate to the point of being a violation of law. The court cannot do that by accepting the agency's view of its own report and it cannot do that by accepting the agency's view of the controlling law. And that's why, in this case, the court, district court erred in not following the legal precedent set by the Court of Appeals. Did you have a follow-up on that, Andy, or should I go on to my other? No, I'd be, well, I'd be, I'd be happy to. You know, it's just fascinating to me. I know when you go to Washington, D.C., the buildings are so big, the architecture, it just makes you feel like the small little ant in this giant metropolis. And maybe that's even by design. Maybe they did that on purpose. Who knows? But you know, the reality is they're just filled by regular people. But then when you try to hold them accountable, it seems that by the government standard and backed up by the courts, uh, at least at this point, that they really are not accountable for anything if you listen to them that they can issue any kinds of reports and it just leaves me wondering what recourse do citizens have just regular people when they have information that contradicts an official story it's so obvious and again as you know when you say the reports don't have to be perfect understandable if they get some minor thing wrong but the overall gist of what they're saying is correct. I think the American public would forgive that. But in this case, we have such a just a polar opposite of what they are saying. When with what we present it changes the whole context of the event itself, 
that's not just a minor error. That is a huge deal. And it just leaves me wondering, again, like how much evidence is the government allowed to ignore? I mean, if yeah. you have an assassination or of something and you can clearly see in a video somebody shoot from over here and they say the, but they say it came from over there and it's right there. Can they just ignore it? Because it seems in the case of 9-11, they have ignore, ignored observable facts that can be reproduced and pointed out very easily. So, I mean, I mean, how much are they allowed to ignore according to them? Well, there are two questions there. One is what does the law allow them to ignore? And the other question is what are the courts currently allowing them to get by with? Those are two different questions. Okay, and our case is one example of that distinction between what the law actually allows versus what the courts are allowing the agencies to get by with. In this case, I mean, the point you raise, Andy, has a un underlying it a very fundamental concern that actually goes to the Constitution. And that is the right of citizens to access the courts to petition the government for redress. If the standing doctrine is applied in such an egregious way that nobody, no citizen has standing to challenge agency action, no matter how illegal, no matter, no matter how dangerous. Um, and in this case, you know, I just can't tell you how offended I am that the rights of 9-11 family members and the first responders are not being recognized here. The two groups that have suffered so much from this tragedy that the courts don't recognize that they can at least have a right to get to the merits of these allegations. Um, you know, when you when you apply a standing doctrine in that restrictive a way, you're basically saying you, the court, are basically saying, and I think in a legally erroneous way, what you're saying, Andy, which is nobody can question the government, nobody can challenge the government, the government can do whatever it wants. It's going to be eff effectively immunized and be allowed to lie to the public and to cover up, uh, you know, major crimes, which is what 9/11 is. It's the crime of the century that's yet to be investigated and prosecuted. And that's uh, that's a very disturbing situation. We're doing our best to hold the courts to account. I would expect um, that the Court of Appeals in the District of Columbia would do a more academically, legally correct job of analyzing this case than the district court did in this case. I don't. I wouldn't expect the D.C. Circuit, for example, to ignore its own precedent that we've been talking about. So there's a reason to go to the Court of Appeals, um, and the reason why we expect to get perhaps a more careful application of the law from the Court of Appeals than we got from this panel. We were hopeful that this panel would apply the law correctly because of the prior decision I mentioned. We lost in that prior decision against the FBI because Congress hadn't in its wisdom seen fit to put the report requirement into the statute. It was just in legislative history. That's a matter we can take to Congress. But in this case, the requirement for the public report was in the statute. So we thought the court would just say, okay, this court, this case is different. This case exemplifies a basis for informational standing that we were talking about in our prior decision. So we're gonna grant informational standing here. And I think that's what this court should have done. Uh, it didn't do that for reasons which are not clear to me. And, and in not doing it, it raises the concern that you mentioned, which is just how much are the courts going to let the agencies get by with and just how much, to what extent are the courts going to insulate agency misconduct from judicial review by relying on 
an erroneous view of standing. That's why this case is important, and it's important. Its importance goes well beyond the details of this particular case, even though this case, dealing with the crime of the century about the murder of several thousand people using explosives, what we would normally call a bombing crime, what the FBI would normally call a bombing crime, but they've gone way out of their way to avoid calling it that. Um, you know, that would normally be one of the more significant things the courts could address. You would think they would want the truth to come out. And, you know, if the agencies are innocent, why can't they just defend themselves on the merits? Why do they need to be protected by this standing roadblock? Yeah, I guess it's just really eye-opening for me, and it should be for everybody out there to show how when it matters, and I'm not talking about some minor thing, some civil dispute about somebody's fence being a few inches into somebody's yard, all that stuff that has no bearing on how the money flows and uh, who's making it or any of those things or uh, matters of life and death. But when it matters, uh, it just seems that the laws just can be bent and mutilated to try to protect the status quo, no matter what evidence that you uh, come up with or that you can show them. I mean, they can, in the fact case of Building 7 report, I mean, they can leave parts of the building out, the missing structural features, and say, it's just fine. Yeah, it doesn't matter, even though it completely nullifies our conclusions, and uh, just go on business as usual. And when ordinary citizens try to point this out, I mean, they can just ignore whatever they want, according to them. Now, I don't believe that. I don't believe that. And, you know, they talk about standing because they want you to sit down and shut up. You don't have standing. You got to sit down and be quiet. No, you need to stand up and you need to keep on demanding that this be uh, heard and keep on bringing this up in the courts and keep on knocking on the door. That's the only way anything ever gets done in this world. It's not one knockout punch. It's many small things done well continuously. Um, now, you were talking earlier, and you asked me if, if you, want, you could go on with your next point. So I want to give you a chance to do that if, uh, if you still have that train of thought. I do. So one of the other uh, basis for standing we asserted was a doctrine called organizational standing. It's different than informational standing. It doesn't require the right to specific information in a report or some other way from the agency. It has to do with whether the agency's conduct interferes with the nonprofit organization's mission. And in our case, in the case of architects and engineers, we asserted the obvious that architects and engineers' mission is to bring the truth out about the reason for the collapse of their trade center buildings, including Building 7. And the NIST report was such a sham in not giving a likely technical cause of that collapse, but giving a false reason, and then keeping the modeling secret as a black box. We still haven't seen it, so it can't be independently reviewed. That essentially, NIST report is worse for AE's mission accomplishment than if they had issued no report at all, because it's essentially misleading the public, actively misleading the public about what NIST uh, thinks, well, is about what NIST asserts falsely to be the cause of the collapse. But if AE is going to perform its mission, you know, it can't, it can't do so unobstructed if the federal government is going to put out false explanations for the very focus of, of AE's mission. So it, our view was that this report was a direct obstacle to AE accomplishing its mission. And the court 
took a what I thought was a very cynical view of nonprofits generally and AE's mission specifically when it said, well, the fact that NIST issued such a bad report gave AE something to complain about, something to critique. So that helps AE that actually uh, facilitates their mission. You have to stop and think about that. What the court is basically saying, in my view, is that the court was treating AE as if it were not a nonprofit with a public interest mission, but a corporation whose only goal is to sustain its own existence and bring in money. And if the government were to do something stupid to give AE something to criticize, it helps AE raise money and stay in existence as a nonprofit. Well, that's not what AE is about. It didn't, it wasn't created to self-sustain itself. It was created to solve a problem, which is to get the truth out about the building collapses and all the implications of that, which are huge. And so the court really, I think, misconstrued the concept of a nonprofit mission and AE's mission specifically and took a very cynical and incorrect view. And that's why the court erred in deciding that AE did not have organizational standing. Well, that's projection going on there. They're projecting <clears throat> their own worldview onto us. Believe me, folks, there's other things we could be doing with our lives right now. We do this because it's the right thing to do and uh, because people died that day and they deserve justice. I would love to, for tomorrow for this to come out on the front page of every major newspaper around the world. I would tear this right down behind me. This would become an art studio and that would be the end of it and we would have succeeded. We don't exist to bring in donations and make money we exist to do exactly this kind of work which the government is not doing and that goes back to all the quotes that are going uh, are going around like the stuff we say and that memo we brought up on the screen and everything it's just a very cynical and arrogant attitude that i just would not expect from a court of law that is my perception uh ted i'm curious to just on what mick was just talking about uh, to get your thoughts well i think mick did a good job of describing it but the, the simple fact of the matter is that our goal is to establish the truth about what happened on 9-11 and specifically with the destruction of these three buildings. NIST put out a, a report that misleads the public, misleads the engineering community as to the true cause of the destruction of Building 7. And, and that is a, a hindrance to our mission that makes it harder uh, for us to achieve our mission, which is a goal. Our mission is not, our mission is not the activities that get us closer to our goal. Our mission is our is our goal, which is to establish the truth about what happened that day. Uh, so yes, as as you both said, it's a very cynical view of say you know what nonprofits are about um, and, and and why they why they exist. So it was it was disappointing and you know disturbing to to read that. Um, yeah, well, you know, I mean, imagine that the tobacco lobby has a huge, huge uh, lobby in, in government and you have government reports coming out saying smoking is not only just fine for you, it's good for you. And uh, you have a group of doctors that come out and say, no, actually, it causes lung cancer. And here's all the documented scientific evidence. Are they existing just to exist or are they providing a public good? Now, we know the answers to <clears throat> questions about cigarettes and, and uh, cancer and how it makes you more... Uh, more at risk for developing lung cancer and all that. We know that, but imagine a world where it doesn't. Are those doctors just existing to make money or are they providing a public good? That is what we are doing here at AE 9-11 Truth. So I, I agree with Mick. I don't think that their arguments hold any water. The main thing is, is that we were lied to about a mass murder. And that is uh, 
what this is all about. Um, <clears throat> all right, so Mick, I just want to get back to a little bit with the, the, the case. I saw the term public safety come up, and um, I know it came up when we were trying to get the input data for the NIST World Trade Center 7 models. Uh, did the in, their interpretation of public safety come up at all in this case? Well, indirectly, not in so many words. The court relied on some previous Freedom of Information Act cases to say that NIST only has to give information under the statute that is not exempt under FOIA and noted that some things in the past in other FOIA cases have been held exempt related to Building 7. There have been some other FOIA cases, which is a different legal animal. FOIA is a different legal animal, the Freedom of Information Act, than the laws we're suing under. And the legal standards are different. And it's not the court, I think, uh, it may, this may be an additional error. We'll have to digest this a little more carefully before we decide the scope of our appeal, but I think the court may have erred in reading reading too much into and assuming too much about the applicability of FOIA exemptions to our case. And, and that it comes into play regarding the modeling that NIST is keeping secret, what I call their black box model. I mean, keep in mind, they claim to have done modeling that supports their conclusion that fire caused the collapse of Building 7, a steel-framed high-rise that's never collapsed in history before 9-11 due to fire. And, and yet, it didn't provide to the scientific community, you know, the details of how their modeling got there. You know, when Professor Halsey at the University of Alaska did his model, he couldn't get it no matter how he tried to do what NIST claims it did in its modeling. He just couldn't get there. And which suggests that NIST modeling is at best wrong and possibly dishonest. And there's no way to really determine that without seeing it. And so what one of the arguments we made in our complaint in this case was that when the National Construction Safety Team Act says that an agency must provide an analysis, emphasized now on the word analysis, of the likely technical cause of the building collapse. That means it can't just give its conclusion. It can't just say, okay, the building, building seven collapsed due to fire and expect everybody to accept it. it that's not compliance with the statute. It actually has to give the analysis supporting the conclusion that what they gave as the likely technical cause really was the likely technical cause. Now, in this case, they've kept that analysis secret because it lies in their computer modeling. The rest of it is just talk and uh, about what their secret modeling presumably does or doesn't do. So our position is their analysis is what we would call inextricably intertwined with its black box computer modeling. It cannot have presented its analysis to the public as required by the statute until it makes its modeling available. Now, in my view, the National Construction Safety Team Act, rather than giving the agency a pass, an excuse not to release that modeling, actually requires, and requires in this case, the release of that modeling. So it's, I think the court has it backwards in this case. Instead of some statutes giving excuses to withhold information, and some statutes do, I've litigated a couple of those FOIA cases, 
and and one of them we were trying to get interviews done by NIST of 9-11 witnesses and there was one interview that was not claimed to be exempt when we sued and the court pointed that out and then NIST had an, an, an order issued after the fact by the head of NIST saying oh we claim this exemption for that interview too which they hadn't done before we sued them and the court allowed them to retroactively apply to defend our lawsuit an exemption that did not exist at the time our lawsuit was filed but this is not one of those cases okay even in that black's view of FOIA exemptions in this case the statute involved actually requires the release of the analysis in plain language in the statute and that analysis involves the modeling so um, we weren't given you know the analysis because we weren't given the modeling and that's another reason why we all should we the plaintiffs all should have had informational standing um, so that I don't know if that fully answers your question about you know what they're holding back but that's how I see it fits in this case well it's just obvious that there is resistance to this uh, this topic which we all know I mean it's not like some su surprise to this audience <laughs> that there's going to be resistance it's important to keep on pushing as I said earlier and uh, you know it, it's possible to commit no mistakes and still lose but i don't think we've lost but basically i think that we are doing everything right we are just coming up against something that is so big that uh that they're going to throw everything they can every rationale they can every twist of logic to try to get in our way and i but i think if we keep on pushing with this and keep on you know uh knocking on the door here eventually that door will open so let's talk about the next steps here and uh this is what we we sent out a bulletin about earlier maybe it was last week i don't know remember but the uh appeals we're going to go to appeal uh so mick describe that process and what we can expect well we have a 60-day deadline to file our notice of appeal from the date of the decision which was several days ago and uh, that notice is uh, a modest one-page document just letting the court know we intend to exercise our right to appeal uh, within a week or two after that some preliminary pre-appeal documents have to be filed laying out some of the background of the case and then probably within about 45 days or so we'll we'll do our first legal brief on documenting explaining the errors of the district court like we've been talking about today so the court of appeals can understand what those errors of law were and uh, the the government of course will get a chance to give a response brief and maybe 30 to 45 days after that we get the last word with a reply brief another couple weeks after that and then we should get oral argument where we will have a chance to explain to a three-judge panel in the dc circuit uh verbally you know our position and answer their questions similar to what we did with the second circuit in new york uh, not too long ago in one of our cases on the grand jury petition issue and those oral arguments can be very helpful in helping the court understand the ins and outs of your position after that the court will take probably a few months to decide 
the case and then we'll get a decision which we would be cautiously optimistic would correct these errors. Yeah, and you know, I don't know about you guys, I haven't consulted with you at all, but I, I'm ready to go to the Supreme Court over this if we have to, because there's deeper implications, if that is possible. I mean, it sounds crazy even saying that, but there's even deeper implications uh, regarding this than just what happened on September 11th. It's, it's who's in control of this country? Is this actually a government of the people, by the people, and for the people? Or is it just for a handful, for a small uh, elite picked to uh, basically make these decisions and everyone else just has to accept it. I think this has constitutional implications in my view. So I think we should push this as far as we can. Um, and of course, our supporters are the most important part of this entire thing because yes, uh, you know, Mick is the one bringing all of this to the courts, but uh, it's your backing out there, your help, your support that keeps us going in this. So if you haven't considered donating yet, take a look at that and please, uh, please consider helping out because this is the kind of stuff that uh, we got to just keep on pushing on. I think eventually we're going to have justice. I mean, you know, I've talked about this before in boxing. You know, it's like real life boxing is not like a Rocky fight where there's no defense and everyone's getting hit in the head. I mean, most people block, you know, but if you keep on punching them on the arms, eventually that person's arms will fall and then you can go for the knockout shot later. It's actions like this that is the punching of the arms in this epic fight. And I think it's uh, just as important as all of the other epic fights throughout American history from the revolution, abolition, and now it's the battle for 9-11 truth. So consider being a part of that. Uh, Ted, what's your main takeaway from this uh, entire experience and this recent development regarding this NIST lawsuit? Well, um, we know when it comes to the legal system that um, you never know what the outcome is going to be. Oftentimes, it, it can seem kind of stacked against you. Uh, and, and this with, at the district level, as Mick said, you know, it's not a surprise, um, you know, the court found against us, but you never know what is going to happen and uh, when it comes to um, fighting uh, legal battles and and trying to exercise your rights and get what you deserve, um, and so I think you know, is to fight as fight as fight as long as you can is, is a big is one takeaway. On the other side of things, the si on the science side of things, this request for correction um, has produced some some important revelations, and regardless of what the outcome of our appeal is there there are some important things that were revealed through this process um i've been writing a series uh about that um on the ae 911 truth website um and it's part it's a five-part series we're two parts in uh you know we will be publishing the rest of of that series over the over the next several months um some of the the first two parts focus on very technical things that may be hard for a lot of people to understand, maybe a little more uh, geared to engineers, but some of the things that are we're going to be talking about and that people can find right now, if you go read the request for correction, and if you read NIST's very short cursory response to the request for correction, and you can find it at ae911truth.org forward slash NIST, so our, our website forward slash NIST, and you can easily find it just by going to the homepage. Um, some really important things. Uh, what we didn't know before that we know now because we took the time to prepare this request for correction, and we know this definitively now, is that the entire roof line of Building 7 went into freefall at the exact same time. Uh, 
uh, NIST tries to paint the picture that there was a gradual buildup to freefall where the building was starting to get starting to fail and then and then went into freefall. That's not the case. Um, we looked at it very closely and found that you get a little bit of movement in the middle of the roof, but really uh, then if you look at three different points across the roof line, both corners and the middle, all three points go into free fall at the exact same time. So it's not just that we have two and a half seconds of free fall, is that the entire building across its width went into free fall at the exact same time. There's no way, absolutely impossible that that can be uh, the result of a natural uh, sequence of, of structural failures. Other important revelations, we've, we discovered a new witness uh, who described an incredibly loud explosion uh, as Building 7 came down. This was a reporter for New York One. Um, this this was brought to our attention, this eyewitness account was brought to our attention during the course of the request for correction. We submitted it to NIST because it directly contradicts their statement in their report that there were no witness reports of explosions. Uh, and yet we have uh, a reporter from New York One saying that she heard an incredibly loud explosion and we confirmed it. We emailed her and she responded to us and confirmed that she witnessed an explosion. Uh, we have NIST, and this is the last one I'll say for now, um, but there's many. So I encourage you to go to that page and read it and educate yourself so that you can educate others. Um, NIST's official position now is that it will not study the piece of steel that was recovered from Building 7 and that is being held at the Worcester Polytechnic Institute because we don't know for sure 100% that this piece of steel came from Building 7. Uh, and therefore, NIST says there is absolutely no basis to study this piece of steel um, that has sulfidation and intergranular melting in it. Every engineer, every scientist who studied this piece of steel knows that it came from Building 7. It was recovered from the building in the weeks after 9-11 and brought to the, to the scrapyard. There are other beams in the same pile as this beam uh, that are marked WTC-7. Uh, no engineer who studied it has questioned that this steel came from Building 7. NIST is trying to say, oh, maybe it came from Building 5 or Building 6, which those buildings were somewhat destroyed, but they were largely intact. They weren't pulling huge amounts of steel from those buildings in the weeks after 9-11. So that's NIST's official position. That steel, we don't know for sure it came building some, uh, so we're not gonna look at it. Um, any sincere investigation would want to study that piece of steel and figure out what happened to that piece of steel because it could provide conclusive evidence as to how building seven was brought down. And the fact that they're not obviously is a giveaway that it's not a, it's not a real investigation. So again, you can read a very short letter from NIST uh, containing statements uh, about trying to defend its position, but they can't. And so their response to this request for correction has proven, has confirmed uh, that their report is indefensible and they know it. So. Yeah, and these, these sound like clowns here. And even at, like, let's just say for argument's sake, it came from building five. How did it get like that? Aren't you curious? Don't you want to know more about this event that you were tasked with investigating? Um, so keep on going ahead and Go ahead. I just want to say, there's a good chance that the, the building that actually collapsed is the one that had the melted steel, not the one that's, you know, still standing, you know, the other two buildings. So um, every, <laughs> there, there's actually multiple pieces of steel recovered from, some of the people don't realize that this was, there were many pieces of steel recovered from building seven that 
showed signs of melting. Uh, this was uh, sta stated by Professor Astane Assel uh, from the University of California, Berkeley. Um, and he said he saw melting of girders uh, from Building 7. So it's not just one piece. It's uh, throughout the debris of, of Building 7. Well, they, as the song says, they are losing control by the hour. And they are losing hearts and minds. The hearts and minds are coming over to us and into other areas of other issues and stuff. And I got a feeling at some point, perhaps the powers that be may not be so anymore. And that is when our time will come and we'll pass something like the Bobby McIlvain Act and we'll have the full truth out there. Uh, Mick, our last minute, I'll give you the final word. Any final thoughts? <clears throat> well, I think just a reminder of the obvious, you know, what is the, <clears throat> the significance if we actually win this case? and which is what we're fighting for. If we get an order from the Court of Appeals that says, yes, we have standing and directing the district court to go back and hear the merits of our case about what was uh, illegal about NIST handling of the request for correction. And if NIST is required, as it should be, to issue a new Trade Center 7 report acknowledging that fire did not cause the collapse of Building 7, but use of explosives or incendiaries did, then the implications of that are huge for the broader issue. And, you know, it would be inevitable that there would be congressional inquiries, FBI investigations, legitimate ones this time, to look at the use of explosives and incendiaries. And that might get us a lot closer to the truth and to real answers for the family members uh, of the 9-11 victims and for the first responders. And, um, you know, that's a primary reason why we're doing this. Absolutely. And folks, if you haven't checked it out yet, the news article is U.S. District Court Rules Against Exposing Truth About Building 7. Your help needed today to appeal this dangerous decision. Help us keep them on the hot seat. Keep them sweating. Keep them coming up with these lame excuses for not dealing with this. And eventually they will crack. Guys, thank you so much for all your hard work. Everything you do, I can't even, I can't even describe it in words, but it's great. And uh, of course, for coming on the show today. Thank you, Andy. Thank you, Andy. Thank you, Mick. Uh, there you go, folks. Another 9-11 free fall. Remember, if you have suggestions for how to improve the show, you can go to ae911truth.org or 911freefall.com. That's how you'll find me. Uh, but for my part, this is Andy Steele saying we'll see you next week. Bye-bye.